Uh, let's go to, in our Bibles to Acts chapter 11. The book of Acts and chapter 11. Um, we'll pick up where our pastor left off last, last time. Acts chapter 11, we'll begin in verse 19. If uh, you have a Bible and you can't find Acts, it's, after, it's in your New Testament right after the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And if you don't have a Bible and no one sitting beside you has a Bible, well, we have it on the screen too. So you can follow along as I read. I'm going to be reading verses 19 through 30. And uh, then in chapter 12, Luke goes back to Jerusalem to talk about Peter. So we'll, we'll read verses 19 through 30. And then chapter 12, verse 25. And then the first three verses of chapter 13. And then I promise I'll be done with the reading. So Acts 11, beginning in verse 19. Why don't you follow along silently as I read out loud. Scripture says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus. Cyprus was an island in Cyrene which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad. And exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then, then, then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Chapter 12 and verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Chapter 13. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. The word of the Lord. Today we're, we're going to learn this, how to be a difference-making 
church. A difference-making church. We'll learn that as we continue our series through the book of Acts. Let's, let's pray together. Father, uh, we ask that you would help us with your word this morning. Our souls are hungry, and we have learned that we cannot be satisfied with bread alone. But what satisfies us, what satisfies your people, is rather every word that comes from your mouth that we have in the scriptures. So feed us, Lord, as we look to your word today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I love origin stories. It's one of the reasons that I enjoy uh, reading biographies. I love those early chapters before uh, the person becomes a president or a general or a great poet. You have the early chapters, their beginnings, their childhood. I love to see where people came from. And Luke, in Acts chapter 11, gives us an origin story of another kind. An origin story for a church. Now you may wonder if Acts is all about the gospel going from Jerusalem to the nations, why Luke spends so much time on this one church? In in fact, uh, if you look at the end of uh, chapter 11, uh, you have Peter's vision, right? Uh, Peter realizes that the gospel is not just for Jews, but God is interested in drawing all people all over the world to his son. Okay, and If you know about chapter 13, you know that toward the beginning of chapter 13, we have the first missionary journey, where the church really starts doing that, and they start sending people all over the world, sort of fulfilling Peter's vision that started with Cornelius. So what's going on in chapter 11? Why does Luke want to tell us how the church at Antioch got started? Well, I think this origin story matters because... All of the good things that happen in the rest of the book of Acts from chapter 13 onward, the first missionary journey, second missionary journey, Paul ending up in Rome, that all starts with the church at Antioch. This is, this church, this community of Christians in this large city is the hinge on which the rest of the missionary activity in the book of Acts turns. All the missionary activity, all of the church planning, all of the work going into other nations and other peoples and planting congregations of Jesus followers starts right here in Acts 11. There's a progression that hopefully you've noticed in Acts. We started with the Ethiopian eunuch. Just one Gentile, just one non-Jewish person who heard the gospel and believed, Philip went to the eunuch and one man was saved. Peter goes to Cornelius and a whole household, a whole family is saved. So he started with a man and we went to a family and now Christianity is moving beyond Jerusalem in a big way. Not just a man and not just a family, but a city. Antioch was the third largest city uh, in the Roman world. It was Rome, and then number two was Alexandria, and then number three was Antioch with about half a million people. And the gospel is going to be unleashed in this city. And it all starts uh, in our text 
beginning in verse 19. I want to tell you why I think Luke includes this story, this amazing origin story in the book of Acts. I think it's because Luke wants his readers, both present and future, he wants his readers to know what made the church of Antioch unique. Because this church was a difference-making church. This church not only affected Antioch, it would affect the Roman world, and even eventually beyond the Roman world. Antioch was one church that had a global impact, a difference-making church. So what about the church of Antioch made it this way? What about the church of Antioch? What, What characteristics in this early community of Christians allowed them to make such a difference? Well, we're going to look at four things uh, in our text today, four crucial characteristics of a difference-making church. Number one, number one, the church of Antioch was birthed by and characterized by risky evangelism. Risky evangelism. If you go back to chapter 11 and verse 18, something really interesting happens when uh, Peter comes back and reports about what's happened with Cornelius. There's, a, there's an, almost another Pentecost. The Holy Spirit coming on Gentiles. And verse 18 is really interesting. It says, talking about people at the church at Jerusalem, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. They have kind of an awakening moment, right? This is a big realization. Oh, I guess Gentiles can have repentance unto life also. I guess they can be believers. I guess they can be followers of Jesus. That's the realization that comes over the church of Jerusalem. So what do they do? Well, they start a committee and they decide, I guess this means we need to plant churches all over the Gentile world. So here's where we're going to start. We're going to start in Antioch. After all, it's a huge city. So we're going to start a church there because after all, Gentiles need to hear the gospel too. Is that what they do? No. (laughs) What do they do with this new information, this new realization that Gentiles can also be saved? They don't do anything with it. They kind of sit on it. Did you know that sometimes uh, people will hear a sermon and they don't do anything with it? It's frustrating. (laughs) Peter has this amazing revelation, this amazing thing happens, and the people in the church at Jerusalem are like, oh, that's cool, Gentiles can be saved. Moving on. Well, they're scattered in verse 19. Many of the Christians are scattered and they travel. And what do they do in verse 19? Preaching the word to none, but unto the Jews only. That's what's going on. And Peter's like, did nobody hear my sermon? (laughs) They're doing the same old stuff. God is taking his time and he's being patient. He's being patient. Stephen's death in verses, uh, verses 19 through 21, we see that Stephen's death instigated a persecution that scattered many believers. And many of these believers were content to find other Jewish communities and tell those Jewish communities about Jesus. Now, it's a good thing that they were sharing the gospel with these Jewish communities, right? Paul would often do the same thing where he would share the gospel 
in a synagogue and, and tell them we have all of these expectations in the Hebrew scriptures. This man, Jesus, fulfills all of those expectations. He is the Messiah. But what's not good about this is who they're not talking to. They're not talking to any non-Jews about the Jesus that these Christians have just heard Peter explain can hear the gospel. They're slow in obedience. But I love verse 20. I love verse 20. And some of them, not all of them, some of them from Cyprus, it's an island, a nation, Cyrene, Cyrene's in modern-day Libya, North Africa, they come to Antioch, and they don't just talk to the Jews, do they? They also speak to the Grecians. A lot of us like convenient evangelism. That's what some of you are going to do with the Easter invites. You're not going to give this to anyone that scares you, right? You've already decided in your mind, I'm going to find someone. They look put together. They're not too different from me. They have to have 19 Awana badges, a picture of Billy Graham in their home, right? John 3.16 on their shirt. And I'll give them an Easter invite because they're not going to reject me. That's safe evangelism. Safe evangelism doesn't reach people. Safe evangelism is just that. It's safe. Safe evangelism keeps you from getting hurt by people who turn you down. A lot of people want to be like the sower in the parable of the sower, except they only want to find the soil that's going to be fruitful. There's a problem. You don't know what soil is going to be fruitful. So what does the parable of the sower, and what does the sower do in the parable? What does the farmer do? He sows seed everywhere, indiscriminately. He just gives it out. Well, didn't some fall on hard ground? Well, yeah, that's going to happen. Isn't some going to get taken by the birds? Yeah, that's going to happen. But you're not going to know what's going to be fruitful unless you just throw it out there. These men, these unnamed evangelists, whoever they were, they weren't just looking for the right person who knew who they knew would say yes to coming to church. They took a risk. Do you take risks in your evangelism? Have you ever invested some, in someone that you knew was maybe even likely to disappoint you? Hey, listen, that's not foolish. God blesses that. That's how you get the church at Antioch. That's what this church was made up of. Risky evangelism. Why don't we have their names? Why don't we know who these people were that evangelized these uh, first members of the church at Antioch. Why don't we know who they are? Are you okay with not being known? Are you okay with sharing the gospel people with people and no one knowing about it? These people aren't remembered, but the church of Antioch is. Zinzendorf said, uh, what, what an amazing life mission this is. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That runs counter to how a lot of us think about the Christian life. We want to live worldly but be remembered as great Christians. 
live how we want to as long as the preacher nice, says nice things at our funeral. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's what these people did. We have no idea who they were. But we are reaping the benefits today of the church that came out of their risky evangelism. Now, we could imagine how we would have planned the church at Antioch, right? We would have been at the church at Jerusalem. We'd say, okay, if we're going to start a church in Antioch, it's 500,000 people. It's metropolitan. We need a really smart, really flashy person to lead this leadership team. And we got to have a website. I guess they didn't have websites. We got to have a logo. Logos are really important for church planners. If you want to make a difference in people's lives, you got to have a sharp logo. Uh, you need to have a nice building because lost people aren't going to want to go to a crummy meeting place. So you need to make sure before we start this thing in Antioch, we need a, a really nice rented building with really comfortable chairs. We need nice mood music when they come in. We need to give them free cookies. There's a lot of ingredients that go into church planning. Like people write books about this stuff. The church of Jerusalem didn't even plan this. Now, maybe they should have, but they didn't. In fact, when they send Barnabas, they hear about a church being in Antioch that they didn't even start. Why? (laughs) Well, we know God does use planning and initiative. God uses our intentionality. It's okay to send someone to start a church because that's actually, that is what happens in Acts 13. So the church of Antioch was started accidentally, but they start churches intentionally on purpose. They send uh, Paul and Barnabas out, as we're going to see in a few moments. Acts 13 shows us God does use our planning and initiative when it comes to missions. But I think Acts 11 is in the Bible to remind us that God doesn't need any of that stuff at the same time. He can still save people without our cool plans. And he does here. You know something I love about the church of Antioch? Uh, you know, according to our text, it was not made up of first draft picks. The first people that left in the persecution weren't trying to reach these people. They weren't first draft picks. Maybe you're here today in church and you feel out of place. Because religiously speaking because of where you've been and what you've done, or because of some things that have been done to you, you feel like you're not a first draft pick. In fact, you're thinking right now, despite the greeters who said, we're so happy to have you, you thought, no, you don't know me, or you wouldn't say that. I don't belong here. I don't belong in a church. I don't even know why in the world I'm here right now. Why I'm sitting listening to this guy talk about the Bible. That's the people in the church at Antioch. These Christians, these were faithful Christians, by the way, scattered. They see Stephen get stoned, and they're still willing to talk about the gospel. Now, they only do it to Jews, but they're still willing to share the gospel after they watch Stephen get murdered. Those are good Christians. They just had some oversight. These weren't their first choices. This isn't who they wanted in the church. This isn't who they were going for. And maybe you feel like you don't belong here because... No one wants you in the church, but it doesn't matter. Jesus wants people whether other Christians want them or not. Jesus wants you whether other Christians in your life have done a good job of sharing the gospel with you or not. You think, well, I don't belong. That's the kind of people who do belong. 
Those that know, they don't have any way that they can impress God. No. I love the fact that this church was made up of people who weren't first picks. The church at Antioch was marked by risky evangelism. Is our church marked by risky evangelism? Are you marked by risky evangelism? When was the last time we, we, we had someone, maybe who was a guest in our church, or someone who would talk to you about spiritual things, you had them over at your house, you had them in your home, you gave them a meal, and then they never showed up to church again? Some of you think that's a waste. Listen, it's not a waste. It's not a waste. God blesses us when we take risks for the sake of the gospel. Those conversations you had with that person that never turned, they never turned into anything. It's like they were seeking and then they stopped seeking. And you thought, man, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to look for the Awana people when I hand out Easter invites. No, 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 no. Keep doing that. Keep taking risk. This church was birthed out of risky evangelism. And by the way, they're sending Paul and Barnabas, two of their greatest people, out. For all they know, they may never see them again. That first missionary journey, we know it was successful because we have the advantage of looking back on it. They had no idea it would be successful. They were taking a risk, but God blesses that. God blesses risky evangelism. Here's number two. The church was marked by submission to teaching. Submission to teaching. Look, just glance in your Bibles down at verses 22 through 26. We read these five verses earlier. It's amazing what happens. Uh, This uh, group of Christians had been marked by dramatic conversions happening in this city. The church at Jerusalem hears about it because, again, they didn't plan this. They didn't start it, and they decide to send Barnabas. And Barnabas helps them out. Now, Barnabas doesn't show up and, and like, you know, when, when I was younger, I thought Barnabas organized the church in Antioch, and he kind of did in a way, and I imagined Barnabas going and telling them, okay, now you're officially a church, and then Barnabas goes home. That's not really what happens, right? No, they meet with the church. There was already a church there. And what does he do? He teaches them. He goes and gets Paul, and he teaches them for a year. That's amazing. It's amazing to me how receptive the church at Antioch is. Because this largely non-Jewish church may have felt unwanted by the church at Jerusalem, right? The evangelists coming out of, church, out of the church at Jerusalem weren't trying to reach these people. They were ignoring them. And now the church at Jerusalem says, hey, we're going to send someone to teach you. And the believers at Antioch could have felt like, what do you guys have to teach us? You don't even want us there. We're not circumcised. We don't do the feasts and things. We don't have your rituals. We don't don't have your traditions. You're going to send someone to teach us, but they submit to it. They submit to it. Not out of love for Jewishness, but out of love for Jesus. So yeah, the the church of Jerusalem finds out and they send Barnabas. And isn't this phrase just amazing that it says Barnabas sees the grace of God? Wow, isn't that powerful? I've been on two missions trips. I want to go on more. You know what happens when you go overseas? You see uh, people that you've never even met before, right? 
They've not been influenced by you. They've not heard your sermons. They've not read your favorite authors. They've not heard your favorite sermon podcast. They've not been influenced by American churches. You go over to these different countries, and, but they're Christians. It's amazing. It's like, wow, God can save people even if I've not talked to them. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> That's the grace of God. That's what Barnabas sees, but he doesn't just see it. He stays with them, and he and Paul teach them. And instead of reacting out of pride and rejecting Paul and Barnabas' help, they submit to teaching. Why? Because they realize, this church realizes, it's not enough to have a dramatic conversion. If you want to be a difference-making church, it's not enough that you have a story of how you came to believe in Jesus. You need to spend the rest of your life growing in the knowledge of Jesus. Churches that make a difference are not full of people that say, well, I'm going to heaven, I'm good, I don't need any help now. No. No. And conversion is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing and it happens in a moment. Going from death to life. Going from hating your sin or going from loving your sin to loving God and hating your sin. Going from rejection to repentance. Going from disbelief to faith. It's an amazing moment. But conversion is not enough to build churches that make, differ- that make a difference in the world. We need to grow in Christ for the rest of our lives. We need to be under the ministry of the word. One of the ways we do that is coming to church. You should come to church. Even if you've already gotten saved. Why? Because there's more that you need to learn about the way of Jesus and about the way a Jesus follower lives. And you're going to be learning that until you get to heaven. You have started, you you didn't just make a decision when you became a Christian. You've started an apprenticeship with the Messiah. And it's not over yet. So you need to be in church. You need to join a connection group where you can learn and deepen your faith with other Christians. You need to read um, good Christian books. You need to learn doctrine. And I had two guys in the church who several months ago reached out to me at different times and said, we want to know more about theology. We have questions that that we ask or that people ask us. We want to know how to think through those. We want to know more about the Bible. So we went through, for 18 weeks, we met every Wednesday at 6 a.m. Went through a book of just basic Christian doctrines. You don't have to do that with me. I can't do that with everyone. I, I, I wouldn't want to do that with everyone. But man, study the Bible. Study the Bible with other Christians. Have relationships formed around learning more about God's word. Because it's not enough just to follow Jesus. We need a church of people who regularly submit to Jesus' teaching. So that they can grow up in Christ and be mature disciples. The Christians in Antioch realized it wasn't enough just that they had been converted. They wanted to grow and be formed. And by the way, so should we. Are you growing in your faith? Are you growing in your faith? Have you ever asked someone to disciple you? What if they say no? What if they say they don't know enough? What if if they say they're not equipped to disciple me? Ask them for somebody else. Just ask them, well, if you can't disciple me, can you find me someone who can disciple me? Like, it's okay to ask that question if you're a member of a church. It's really healthy. Grow in the word. Grow in the word. 
doesn't mean you have to it doesn't mean you have to be a bookish person. Doesn't mean you have to be subscribed to to a hundred podcasts. But man, are you doing something to deepen your faith? Are you doing something to deepen your knowledge of Jesus? This was not a shallow church. That was just that had a lot of excitement. This was a deep church. It had roots. Can you imagine what they could have learned from spending a year with Paul and Barnabas? Can you imagine the notes they would have taken after hearing Paul like walk through Leviticus? Just incredible. A difference-making church is marked by submission to teaching. Number three, a difference-making church is marked by kingdom concern. Man, I love verses 27 through 30. Just incredible verses. Incredible verses. Uh, Luke tells us that prophets come from Jerusalem and they predict a, a severe famine. Some of you, when I read that, got really nervous. You're like, there were prophets in the early church. What do we do with that? That sounds kind of miraculous. Yeah, there were prophets in the early church. But in case you forgot, just a few chapters earlier, a guy named Jesus rose from the dead. So it's not crazy or weird or mystical to think that this same Jesus could have people that could predict the future in the early church. I think he's capable of doing that, right? So don't worry about that. There were prophets. It sounds, it means exactly what it sounds like. They say there's a, a famine coming. It's going to affect the whole world. It's going to affect this whole area, both Jerusalem and Antioch. It's all going to be under this severe famine. This is really bad news. It's really bad news. So what do the Christians in Antioch do? I remember when I uh, lived, I grew up in the Ozarks in Springfield, and we had a couple of things. We had unpredictable weather. And we had um, a, a very, oh, what's the term? We had a very pessimistic meteorologist. He was kind of a local celebrity. And it was always, always the worst case scenario. And uh, anyway, I grew up watching this guy. I love, when I'm back uh, in Springfield, I stay at my in-law's house. I love when he's doing the weather because it's always so dramatic. And he'll tell you, we're going to have a really bad storm tonight, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be here with you through it all the way through. Just everything is 10 out of 10, you know. So whenever in, in Springfield we would have uh, bad like winter weather predicted, people would go out and buy stuff, right? It's going to snow for two days, but there are people getting toilet paper and like 20 loaves of bread and enough ham and beans for six months. And they're buying flashlights. It's, it's going to snow for two days. Then we get two inches, you know. When people hear bad, bad times are coming, what do they do? They, they think about themselves and their families and they stock up on stuff, right? It's just normal. It's normal. The church at Antioch hears these prophets saying there's a famine coming. It's going to affect you. And what do they do? Their first impulse is to say, hey, what can we send to the church at Jerusalem? What? Don't you want to go buy flashlights and ham and beans? You're going to send money to the church of Jerusalem? Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Because their vision for Jesus' kingdom did not end with their city or their church. It was much bigger than that. Man, I hope you're at missions conference. Um... We're going to have some people here at our church uh, reporting from church plants in Kansas, Colorado, 
Uh, we're going to have people going to Alberta, Canada, India, somebody that's been in Mexico, doing some amazing things in Mexico. We're going to have a family here um, that are church planters in Ukraine. And what they're doing right now, since they can't get back into Ukraine just yet, it looks like they're going to be going back in May. They're here raising money for needy churches in Ukraine. And we, you and I should care about that. They've been hurt by a very evil man. I don't care where your thoughts are politically. Vladimir Putin is an evil man. He's doing terrible things, and it's hurting Christians. People that believe in the same Jesus that you believe in, in Ukraine, their lives are being devastated because of a wicked leader. And they're hurting. And one of the things we're going to be able to do in this missions conference is raise some money for those churches in Ukraine. And I hope you care about that. I hope you care about that. I love what's going on here. I love the, uh, the fact that we're going to baptize eight or nine people in a, in a few weeks in March and April. I love what our remodel has done. I love the lights in our parking lot. It's like they're planets. It's so bright out there. And it's amazing. Some amazing things have happened at our church. And we should care about that. But our vision for Jesus' kingdom should go beyond liberal Kansas and Fellowship Baptist Church if we're going to be a difference-making church like the church in Antioch. Finally, number four, and then we're done. A difference-making church is a gospel-sending church. A gospel-sending church. Verse 25 of chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 of chapters, chapter 13. We find Barnabas and Saul are together. Uh, the church, which by the way, uh, I don't have time to talk about this, but the church had very diverse leadership. You had people from different countries, different ethnicities leading the church together. Uh, you had people who weren't very rich. And uh, people like the guy who worked for Herod, who, were, who would have been uber rich, working together. Different ethnicities, different economic status, leading the church side by side. Amazing. Amazing. It's not what I really want to focus on. What I want to focus on is what happens uh, when the Holy Spirit tells them, I need you to let go of Barnabas and Saul. What? Barnabas and Saul. These are like the two all-stars, right? I mean, if you're going to build a successful church franchise in Antioch, this is like giving up Kobe and Shaq. Right? Think, I mean, like, when Barnabas and Saul leave, the, the, the quality of teaching is going to drop dramatically. It doesn't matter who these other guys were. It, was, it, it, it must have dropped, right? Man, that must have been hard to let them go. There was no one in the church who could probably encourage like Barnabas could encourage. There was no one who could exegete the Old Testament and preach it like Paul could exegete the Old Testament and preach it. Nobody. They didn't have superstars like that. The Holy Spirit says, I want them to leave, and the church is like, okay, we'll put our hands on them, we'll send them away. Why would they do that? They were willing to send even their best so that the gospel could have fruit in other places. Two questions uh, then really come to us from this. Number one, um, if God called you to leave to share the gospel somewhere else, would you go? Would you go? I don't mean leave because you get mad and you go to another church. <laughs> Not what I'm talking about. 
And if God called you into some kind of missions work, which can be pastoring, doesn't always have to be pastoring. There's a lot of other stuff you can do in missions. But if God called you to do something that would involve you taking the gospel to a different, new, uncomfortable place, would you go? Would you go? And then number two, are we training and equipping people to the level that God would consider calling them? I know it can be very frustrating when you think about our kids and teenagers, and I think sometimes our goal in children's and youth ministries can just be, let's keep them from being rowdy in the service, and let's try to get them to stay in church, maybe until they're 19. What if we raised our expectations just a little bit? Are we teaching our kids the Bible well enough? Are we giving them a passion for Jesus deep enough that God would even consider calling them to go somewhere else to share the gospel? Are we putting ourselves in a position where we will have people to send? Does this make sense? Are you following me? We're probably not going to get someone like the Apostle Paul who just shows up. Hey, do you want to send me? Sure, we'll send you. (laughs) No, it's probably not going to happen. Our future missionaries are going to come from right here. Do we have those kind of expectations? Do we have those kind of desires? Do, are, 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 are parents in this room okay with the idea that you may see your grandkids like once every 10 years? Are you okay with that if it helps the gospel? Well, that didn't go over well. Let's move on. <laughs> this church was born out of and marked by risky evangelism. They submitted to the teaching of God's word. They had a kingdom concern that went beyond their own city. And they practiced gospel sending. Let me just ask you this. Um, and Elijah's going to go ahead and come up. Our band's going to come. And we're going to sing together. But before we sing together, I just have four questions. Four questions in response to this text of scripture. Number one, who are you sharing the gospel with? Who are you sharing the gospel with? We had a a few months ago, we had, Hannah and I had some of our friends in the church over and uh, we ended up just spending like the whole evening talking about strategizing for reaching people. They were, they were talking about the different people they're trying to reach for Christ that's like what we did for the whole evening. If you got into a conversation about that, would you have anything to talk about? Are there people you're trying to reach for Jesus? Are you taking risks? Number two, how are you deepening your faith? You may not get to do a year-long intensive theology course with Barnabas and Paul, but are you deepening your faith? Do you know more about Jesus and about following Jesus now than you did two years ago? If not, why? Why? What are you doing for the kingdom outside of this church? Do you care about Christians and gospel work outside of our town? And then number four, are you willing to go out for the gospel? And if God doesn't call you to leave this place to be a missionary and share the gospel, are you equipping and maturing others so they can be sent out? That's what a difference-making church looks like. I pray God would allow Fellowship Baptist Church to be a church that makes a difference.